Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Emeritus Professor Randy Garrison in this episode. Randy's career started in distance education and for over 30 years his work transitioned across into e-learning. He was instrumental in developing the community of inquiry model across his extensive career with the University of Calgary. It's my pleasure to be talking with Emeritus Professor Randy Garrison, who, as his Wikipedia entry says, has published extensively on distance education, and 13 books and over 100 peer-reviewed articles certainly bear this out. His more recent work extended into e-learning and the community of inquiry model, which he co-developed. Randy, it's very good to be talking with you. Oh, my pleasure. Can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? Okay, sure. Um, I could start by saying that uh, my academic career was totally unplanned, uh, serendipitous. Uh, I began my career as a math physics teacher. Um, I did that for approximately 15 years or almost 15 years. Mm. In terms of education, I have a master's degree in computer applications. And uh, uh, this was a time before personal computers, by the way. Uh, yeah. uh, and then I went on and did a doctorate in adult education, which proved to be really fortuitous in a lot of ways. But my main goal there was I just really wanted to take a year off work and uh, move out to the West Coast. Uh, so I enrolled at UBC in a doctoral program and, and finished it, uh, not anticipating uh, an academic career in any way. I came back to my college position uh, but was shortly after was offered a, a temporary position as director of distance education, which mm. kind of fit into my background, uh, given I had kind of a technology background. And uh, anyways, um, that was great. Uh, it was a fun year, but uh, I was very fortunate again that the uh, person I was replacing didn't come back. And so the position opened <laughs> up and I was yeah. uh, given a tenure track position. Uh, the the really great thing, and I'll say more about this, but at the time, the great thing was it wasn't a traditional distance education uh, program. We were uh, using audio teleconferencing, and this really opened my eyes in a lot of ways. Uh, it was quite different from uh, traditional distance ed, as I'm sure you can appreciate, because audio teleconference is both interactive and synchronous, yeah. which is, is uh, really quite the opposite of distance education at the time. By the way, that was back in the late 80s. Uh, I, I took that position. Position on, I think, 1985, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 84, 85, somewhere around there. Yep. So, anyways, as a result of that, I began to question, and I'll talk more about this, the assumptions of distance ed, and it uh, opened up uh, really uh, an avenue of research that I followed for the next 30, 35 years. Great. So, across that time, of course, you've published extensively. Can you talk briefly about the ideas and themes your work has provided, particularly those that you sense are still pertinent today? Yeah, you bet. Um, I'll just uh, highlight just a handful of noteworthy publications, and it, mm. it will fit into, you know, some of the ideas that that uh, I've explored uh, as well. Um, the f the first book I did was in 
1989, and it, it really uh, it was titled uh, Understanding Distance Education, a Framework for the Future. It was a bit pretentious, given I just started in the field. <laughs> yeah. But uh, really what I did was I, I was challenging the, the assumptions of distance education as a as a independent study and, and idealizing independent study, and I really uh, went against that. Um, uh-huh. The next uh, publication that, that uh, was in the 90s, uh, and I started in the 90s to explore computer conferencing and really to more explore this education as a transaction. And yeah. uh, from there, I moved into collaboration and so on. And that that then uh, set the stage for our article uh, that we did uh, with uh, Terry Anderson and Walter Archer in 2000 that uh, really outlined the uh, community inquiry framework. Mm-hmm. And there were several articles at that time dealing with each of the presidents as well. Uh, so, uh, and I won't go on too much longer, but there are a couple more publications I'll mention. And one that was really critical, and it was a totally a collaborative effort, uh, even though I initiated the the study, and that was uh, where we developed a, a, a quantitative instrument to to measure community of inquiry, mm-hmm. and uh, we used that to test the the framework, and we did validate the framework and so on, and that opened up a whole uh, a wide range of research for for others as well as ourselves. Uh, the other publication that that I will mention, there's two more, very briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Norm Vaughn and I did a publication in 2008 on blended learning, and I, I think that was really the first book on blended learning, and uh, in some ways defined the field and put blended learning on the map, and uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, Norm followed up uh, with that uh, and has continued to do work in that area, less so myself. Um, the final one I will mention is the last major publication that I did, and that was on shared metacognition in 2015 with Sarah Akiol, a colleague of mine, or a student of mine actually at the time. Um, and I think that's a very important construct. I'll talk about that maybe a little bit later. Mm-hmm. So those are the publications. Great, on my desk too, I've got e-learning in the 21st century, uh, the Community of Inquiry Framework for Research and Practice. So uh, you, you've made a great deal of impact on my own career, so thank you very much for that. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, that that really is, uh, I didn't mention that because I didn't think it was a landmark in the sense that it, it, it really is a summary of a lot of research, you know, so um, it was the third edition, so I tried to keep it up, and uh, although that may be the last edition. So, anyways, th- that's those are the publications. Do you want me to go on and talk a bit about the themes and ideas? Oh, please do. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I thought about this a little bit, and I thought the best way maybe to deal with this, and it works out quite well, is I thought I'd talk about it in terms of phases of my work, mm. um, because it really does reflect uh, themes and ideas as well. But my first phase uh, was in, in the 80s, the late 80s, when I took on the, the directorship of the uh, distance head unit there. and. Um, and studied teleconference, which really proved to be very beneficial. And as I said, mm-hmm. uh, got me thinking about the transactional nature of, of education. And and I challenged the assumptions of distance ed. So that that period of time was really challenging the, the foundation of distance ed. As I said, a bit presumptuous given that I was new to the field, but I, I was <laughs> foolish enough to continue with that. And I think it worked out pretty well. Um, and pointed out that uh, distance, I think distance ed and, and particularly independent study really didn't meet the ideals of an educational experience and, and that we could and, and perhaps should do better. Um, mm. So that was my my message and, and theme, I guess, of, of that work. Uh, the second phase, and it worked out pretty well in the, in the 90s, is I, I turned to 
than um, computer conferencing, which really fit in nicely to my background. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and did a lot of work with that in terms of uh, seeing that what, what we could do is, is really to develop, uh, in this case, asynchronous collaboration and, and discourse. So that, mm-hmm. uh, and I explored a whole range of ideas related to that that eventually proved beneficial uh, that I'll talk about in the third phase. But um, in any case, what we, we did and what uh, with the computer conferencing is that we, this is when I was at the University of Calgary, developed an online graduate program in continuing ed. It proved to be very successful and popular. Mm-hmm. And I think it was certainly the first in Canada and one of the first really uh, uh, worldwide, I think, at that time in the mid-90s uh, that is an online graduate program. And uh so that that really defined, I think, the 90s. I was developing a lot of theoretical constructs and, and working with computer conferencing, which then really uh, evolved, of course, into online learning. We started using that term, online learning, um, in the late 90s when I moved to the uh, University of Alberta as a dean of, of continuing education up there. But I had two uh, former students, Terry Anderson and, and another colleague of mine, Walter Archer, was up there, and and we got together, started talking talking about uh, doing a, an online graduate program like I had done at the University of Calgary. And um, anyways, that stimulated a lot of thinking about, well, uh, because we, we had to justify this uh, this kind of program. Uh, university of Alberta was a, an old traditional university, and uh, they were very skeptical about us doing uh an online program, particularly the faculty too. We hadn't done a graduate program as well. So, uh, but anyways, so we had to figure out how how we justify it. And, and this is where we came up with the community of inquiry framework, really for pragmatic purposes, that is to justify the uh, approval and get approval for this graduate program. <laughs> yeah. Publication was, was quite secondary at, at that particular moment. Um, so we threw it out there. We actually put it in an online journal, which was quite new at the time. And mm. it was a bit risky, I guess. And we thought we got nothing to lose. It actually turned out to be really advantageous or fortuitous in that uh, it got out very quickly and um, it was very accessible. And so people became aware of it quite quickly. So um, that's basically uh, how that all started. Then, and I won't, I won't go on too much longer, but uh, the, the critical element there was that, that we developed this, uh, this uh, community inquiry survey instrument uh, mm-hmm. where we validated the framework. And that really opened up uh, a, a number of avenues of research and, and a much more efficient way to study the community of inquiry. We no longer had to code transcripts and so on as we did at first. So that really was a, a turning point uh, for research. And, and uh, actually, I just looked at an article this morning that, that looked at uh, how our references, uh, citations, I should say, of, of the community required framework took off after that. Uh, it was quite remarkable, uh, you know, 10 times the number of publications uh, just gradually increased exponentially. Fantastic. It, it certainly was the right model at the right time. And it, it's over 20 years old now, isn't it? But it's still uh, in, in substance as it first was. Yeah, I, I hate to say this, but uh, we're very fortunate COVID came along because that really <laughs> turned people's attention to it. A lot of researchers were looking at it, but uh, from a, a pragmatic perspective, it was, there was a lot of resistance, as there always is, with things like online learning. Mm. Um, so uh, anyways, uh, that, that yeah, the, the, the interest... Uh, 
was unbelievable uh, as a result of COVID, and I hope it continues. That's another issue. Yeah, yeah. So when you first started in online education, then it was about um, online bulletin boards, um, the likes of synchronous, uh, sorry, asynchronous text exchanges. But before that, you were working with audio uh, teleconferencing. Uh, e-learning certainly has come a long way over the past 20 odd years. So it's now mid 2022. What are your observations about online learning and education at the present time? Uh, yeah, it's it's mixed, I, I would say. Uh, my, my first observation really relates to the COVID thing, uh, not surprisingly, I guess, uh, that that has been an enormous catalyst uh, uh, to, I think, understanding and proliferating online learning, really. Uh, and uh, I think it's brought widespread attention, which is good but whether it will continue is another matter and, and this is where you know i think my primary observation in, in this regard is that i i think blended learning is is uh, in, for the immediate future anyways uh and mainstream education i think uh, that's where there's the greatest potential uh, for adopting online learning is the, the area of blended learning. Um, and there's some very good reasons for that. Uh, uh, I think there's there's some continued resistance. There always will be, I think, for online learning. I've experienced it my whole career with, you know, computer applications in education, for example, computer yeah. system pr training programs and so on. There's always been resistance to technology. Um, so uh, I think we, but we have the opportunity, I think, to, to to understand uh, the strengths and weaknesses of online learning, particularly blended learning, and, and mm. how we can uh, combine them, you know, to get the, the best of, of both worlds, uh, to understand that, for example, uh, asynchronous learning is great for reflection, but it's not mm. so great for, although we, of course, you can overcome it, but for personal connection and, and motivation. So face-to-face -face have strengths mm. there. Anyways, we need to understand that. We need to understand, I think, that there are some weaknesses uh, or at least areas that are challenging, uh, such as grade level. I think younger students, you know, for going totally online is problematic, less so uh, with older students or graduate students. Uh, subject matter, same mm. thing. The, the maths and sciences sometimes have uh, certain challenges, but all of these can be mitigated by, I think, simply understanding and good design. And the whole design thing brings me to mm -hmm. my next observation, and, and that's faculty development. I really, we've got to put far more uh, effort into faculty development. That was pretty evident with COVID, uh, yeah. that half the problem, most of the problems, if there were any problems, were simply faculty were not prepared properly, didn't have the time or the resources. And that's really grossly unfair to faculty to ask them to, to shift so significantly without having an idea of what to do to be successful. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's, that's uh, that's the area that I think uh, the other th comment I really like to make there is that, it, that successful online learning, and, and there's evidence is growing in this regard, is really fundamentally based on developing community. Um, mm. Otherwise, you know, why have online learning if, if you're just going to study independently? It goes right back to my beginnings of arguing. We, we had to argue this with, with audio conferencing. If you're not going to use it interactively, then don't use it, you know, it sort yeah, of defeats yeah. the whole advantage of it. Right. So uh, rather than just lecturing using audio conferencing, you'd actually have conversations, uh, encourage learners to talk with one another, explore ideas. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that goes to the heart of it. When I talk about community, I'm really talking about collaborative uh, inquiry. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And, and that's both, and, and this is very important, and I, this is in the model of, of the cognitive presence, and, and that is that there's both reflection and discourse. So, and that is that yeah. there's the individual focus as well as, as the group focus. And they're fused and integrated, and this builds on the ideas of Dewey and so on, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the philosophical theoretical background is there. Uh, that's what I, I, I alluded to in the 90s. I developed a lot of this, uh, this stuff uh, coming out of Dewey's work. Mm-hmm. I just want to add with regard to faculty development that it really so much depends, and I use my own experience as an administrator here uh, and the, the head of a teaching learning unit as well, um, that is institutional leadership is, is critically important for this. And I must admit I'm not overly optimistic in this regard, <laughs> but I think we're yeah. far better off than, than we were in the past. Uh, but, you know, we've got to go beyond simply the financial forces, the institutional leadership, they identify with the financial, and you can make an argument for that. But they need to better understand the pedagogical advantages as well. Yeah, yeah. So, Randy, if, if, I know you're blissfully retired now, but if, if you were to teach again and you were asked to teach online, how would you approach that in a way that you think would best optimize the student outcomes from a community of inquiry perspective? What, what technologies would you use? What pedagogies would you apply? Yeah, you know, because I've been kind of out of it for some time uh, from a, a pragmatic perspective uh, and the technologies. I, I I assume that the technologies haven't changed very much, so I, I, I wouldn't get too fancy, uh, but and sorry, I'm going to digress a little bit, partly because I don't have a very clear answer, but, uh, but I, I would definitely, uh, you know, keep it simple, because I don't think you can mm-hmm. ask faculty to, to uh, take on too much, particularly when they're transitioning to an online environment. So I've always been uh, of the, the view of, of keep it simple, stupid, and kind of <laughs> the KISS philosophy. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, particularly with regard to technology, and really focus in on what students do. And this is a, a something that I learned in my first week, practically, of teaching. And that is, it's all about what students do and not what instructors do. So... Whatever you could build in, whether it's online, I mean, ideally, if you can have face-to-face, that's great. You know, I would I would find out, you know, when's best to and how often to do the face-to-face. And it depends on a whole variety of contextual factors. Yeah. But um, but I really I really believe so strongly in in the, uh, the the computer conferencing, if you wish, or the online discourse where students can reflect, but also you know interact and and uh, and so on. Because that that is to me the the real power of it. Uh, particularly for collaborative inquiry, that they could reflect on things, take responsibility and control, and uh, move forward. Mm, Great. Well, Randy, you've you've got a lot of research under your belt, uh, and no doubt you're still reading extensively in the field. What research would you most like to see? Where do you suspect the gaps are that we need to fill in for online distance education? Yeah, well, uh, this is really personal, okay? And that is, uh, I think the, the gap right now, the biggest gap or where the biggest payoff, both theoretically and pragmatically, is with shared metacognition. Mm. And I say that because of, of it, its core to the, the framework itself, which has been proven and validated, um, but it is also practically critically important uh, in order to to be a collaborative inquirer you've got to 
take responsibility and control for monitoring and managing the learning experience. So that's what shared metacognition really is all about. It fits in theoretically very nicely into the community of inquiry framework, brings in a whole bunch of things. It really goes to the heart of what a community of inquiry framework is all about. And that's that intersection between cognitive presence and teaching presence, if you want to get technical about it. Yeah. Um, but really, it's about collaborative inquiry. So that's that's one area. I, I, I think there's, there's so much potential for research. If I were supervising graduate students right now, I'd say look at that because there's you've got some real research possibilities there uh, with that. The other area that, I, and I, I'm not an expert in it in any way, even though it was something we anticipated back in the beginning, and that's learning analytics. Yeah. You know, to, to be able to diagnose, particularly online, you know, what's going on, uh, information in, in a timely and efficient manner in order to make decisions about uh, uh, really teaching presence and, and those kinds of things. Uh, I, so I think learning analytics could tell us a, a whole lot. Uh, and, and really it relates to things like metacognition, uh, shared metacognition mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. best to to uh, direct students in terms of monitoring and managing uh, the learning experience. So those would be two areas that come to mind, and it's it's it, that's more of a personal thing. Yeah, yeah, and, and linking those two areas together, metacognition and analytics, that you think there's some um, really rich soil to be dug there? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, with, without a doubt, uh, as I said, if I if I were a young uh, uh, scholar uh, or a graduate student, I I would look at that. But uh, as I said, I'm I'm biased. Uh, but I just think there's I, I could see so many research projects there that uh, I think can have a real payoff. And, because it and, and to do research in my mind, you always have to have the theoretical background, particularly for graduate students. That's where they struggle with so much. But it's all there, you know. So for a graduate student, they could just plug in, you know, right away. Uh, all the theories there, and you could then just jump into the practical implications of it. And, and uh, I think a graduate student could move along very well and, and also do something, I think, uh, important. Yeah, sounds really exciting. So there's already quite a good literature pathway to follow uh, towards that, that study. Yeah, exactly. And, if, and those that are more statistically or technically uh, oriented or back, with the background, they could get into the learning analytics stuff too if they, you have a statistical background. I know it helped me tremendously early on. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a statistics background, and, but it, if you could get into that, um, you could do some other wonderful things there with that as well, uh, related to metacognition or other things, you know. Mm. So, Randy, um, two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning, uh, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you now, and one who you think otherwise might have an important perspective to share. Yeah, um, the one that's influenced me right now is, is it's uh, because I'm retired, it's not having, I suppose, uh, an enormous impact, uh, at least from my own research. Uh, and that's um, the fellow that's done a lot of work in, in terms of learning analytics. And, and I think one of the leaders in the area is uh, Professor Gasovich, I think it's, you pronounce oh, yes. it. He's, yep. he's actually at Monash, I think, University. Uh, is it Dragon? I think it is. Yeah. It's, and I do, I've never met him, but uh, he's the fellow that, that seems to have a, a good background. And he's done other work in with the community of inquiry as well, so uh, particularly with cognitive presence. So he's he's somebody that I I would I would identify. Uh, but again, I, as I said, I don't have any immediate experience. 
The other one um, that I would identify uh, perhaps uh, from uh, the, the work that she's done with the community of acquiring, we, we were collaborators way back when, when the community of acquirers started to take off in us. Mm. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Richardson um, mm. at uh, Purdue uh, University and, and continues to do uh, considerable work with the community of acquiring. So she was definitely a leader that I would uh, you know, uh, recommend if you were to interview somebody. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Well, um, Randy, thank you so much for your time. It, it's been a real education listening to you. Uh, thank you so much for being a leader and legend of online learning. Oh, well, my, my pleasure. And uh, I hope it was of uh, some use. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. You can learn more about Randy and his work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.